Um, God can use every single one of us where we've been placed uniquely as missionaries, um, people who can go out and uh, love our, our culture where it's at uh, and do what we can to, uh, to offer our lives uh, to the Lord in that way. So let me pray for that. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Um, we thank you for the ways uh, in which you bless us. Um, and God, we just pray. Um, we pray that you would give us opportunities. Um, that you would open our eyes to the opportunities that are around us all the time. Uh, to give our lives to you. Uh, that we would give you our money, Lord. But uh, that we would give you our movie watching. Um, and our pickup basketball league. And the poetry we write in our spare time. Or our time at the office, or our time tutoring kids, or our time with our neighbors. Because, God, we know that you use these things when we lay them before you as an act of worship. So we pray that you would take those things and use them. In the name of Jesus, amen. Hmm. What's the, the real question for me is, is my wife somewhere in this room? Do you know how this works? Because I'm not sure that it is. Yeah, I pushed it already. These are the things. Huh? It's working. All of a sudden. There we go. You just needed my presence. That's it. <laughs> I really did. Now, I doubt you can smell it just yet. Because it's only just begun. But I can tell you this. In a little bit, you're about to. Um, and the smell you're going to smell is uh, Nardostachys yastamantis, a little flower that grows in the high mountains of Persia. Uh, so just to the east of the Middle East. And it's a little flower that's hard to find, but people do. And they find it because if you crush the underground stems, uh, you can create a little fragrance uh, that's been used in perfume making for about 2,000 years. And the cool thing for me um, is that Jesus actually smelled this, which is really fun. So you're going to smell something that Jesus smelled. Uh, and I think that's miraculous, um, not just because the Internet is an amazing place, uh, but it is. Uh, but also because we have a God who knows what it's like to be us, to be in a body like us, and uh, to have senses like we do. And there's a fragrance that's going to fill this room that filled a room about 2,000 years ago. So if you would, turn with me to Gospel of John, chapter 12, and we'll read about it. John 12, we're going to be at verse 1. You actually need a Bible or device at this point, because uh, we want you to be in the habit of opening one. We're continuing in a series called Loved, Invited, Transformed. John 12, starting at verse 1. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. When the great crowd of Jews learned that he was there, they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death as well, since it was on account of him that many of the Jews were deserting and believing in Jesus. 
The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written of him and that they had been done to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, it is my hope and prayer that you would speak and that we would listen. That you would quiet our hearts and focus our minds. And God, we really need to hear from you today. That's why we come. So we pray, Spirit of the living God, that you would speak loud and clear. In the name of Jesus, amen. Worship has a, a distinct smell. And there are many acts of worship in the passage of Scripture we just read. The Pharisees, the crowd... Judas, and Mary. But you may not know exactly what I'm talking about, and so those dots might be a little tricky to connect. Jesus, elsewhere in the New Testament, will say uh, that worship is about where your treasure is. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Worship is about the most valuable thing in your life. Uh, Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Uh, Worship is, first and foremost, an, an act of the heart, and then it's an action of the body. Worship is first an act of the heart and then an action of the body. We would say that everything we do on a Sunday morning in this place is worship. Not just the singing, but also the praying and the reading scripture together and listening to a sermon and taking communion and giving an offering and being blessed. All these things are acts of worship. So it's not really the actions themselves, but the act that comes first. There are lots of different actions of worship, but one real act of the heart. The people of Israel in the Bible, uh, they worship very differently than we do. Their primary act of worship actually was at a barbecue, uh, and it happened all the time. And I really wish that we could just get back to biblical basics on that. Because um, if we worship the God of Leviticus, we would, we would have good ribs and brisket every Sunday. Uh, can I get an amen, people? Come on. Like, that's... Let's, Let's get back to what the Bible talks about when it comes to worship. I just think that would be delicious. And this is what would happen every time uh, to worship the Lord. You would take something really valuable to you, grain maybe that you'd worked really hard for all year round, the first fruits of it, the very first stuff that came up, uh, a sheep or a cow, uh, one that you'd raised, but your best one, one that didn't have any scratches or cuts or blemishes. Its hair was all in the right place. The horns looked good. I don't really know a lot about cattle. And you would bring this thing all the way to the temple... And the priest would take it from you, and you would watch as he turned it into smoke on the altar. That's the consistent phrase all throughout the Old Testament. He turns it into smoke on the altar because God can smell the worship. Not just the barbecue, but what's going on underneath it. Worship is first an act of the heart, and then an action of the body. And there is a distinct odor in this particular passage of Scripture coming from the Pharisees. And it's not good. I mean, it's well past the expiration date at this point. There is a stench and a reek coming from the Pharisees. They didn't just go bad a while ago. They are well past their date. 
at verses 9 to 11 in our passage of Scripture. The Pharisees are responding to what's happened in the life of Lazarus. Everyone's really responding to this. In the last chapter, Lazarus was dead, and Jesus raised him from the dead the way I would wake you up from a nap. It was just easy for him. And people are blown away by what God is doing in their time. I mean, it's like one of the prophets of the Old Testament has walked off the pages. Elijah, Elisha, it is amazing what God is doing in Jesus Christ. Amazing. And the Pharisees respond to the same thing by saying, if people keep following him, they're not going to follow us. We should kill that guy. Not just Jesus, but Lazarus. We talked about this a little bit last week. That's insane, right? He just died. Why, how do you think you can threaten him into silence? But today what we're going to talk about is more of the crazy hard-heartedness that has to come along with that kind of action. To see God do something miraculous, like raise someone from the dead, and not only are you not convinced, but you try to undo that miracle. You try to reverse it. Their reaction to someone being raised from the dead is, let's kill him. Now these, again, are people who are experts in worship, who understand the Bible backward and forward, who are flawless in their pursuit of the Lord. They should recognize Jesus more than you and I should. And they don't, and it doesn't make any sense. Not only that, but these experts in the law of Moses are doing what they can to figure out how to commit a murder are doing what they can to figure out how to commit a murder without getting accused of murder. This is a crazy thing that is happening. And yet I would still say that these guys are worshiping. They're just not worshiping the God that we know in Jesus or the God that Israel knew in the Old Testament. They're worshiping their own power and pride. And you can see that in their actions. You can smell it all throughout this story. That's the most valuable thing for them, their own power and pride. The crowd, I think, does a little bit better at worshiping. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And you and I, we recognize that because we literally sang a song that said those words a second ago. That's how we worship. We understand this kind of worship. We actually understand this kind of worship better than we understand Mary's worship. Because Mary's is intimate and weird and expensive, and extravagant, and that, it just, the crowd has it about right, I think. We, we understand that kind of worship, and we want to do that kind of worship on a Sunday morning. It, it doesn't cost us too much. It's not too uncomfortable. That's, that's about the lane we would really like to stay in. And I'm not saying that the crowd isn't worshiping Jesus. I think there are many people in the crowd who worship Jesus. But it's worth remembering that in the course of this story, just a few days from now, these same people, many of them, will be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. The same people shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel, will be absolutely disgusted by Jesus to the point that they want him dead on a cross. Or will be so disappointed by his death on a cross that they walk away. A little bit ago, some of us were singing. And some of us, at least some of the time, were worshiping. And I don't really know who was doing which. That's the most interesting thing about it. it. You know if you were, and God knows if you were. But I don't know. I mean, some of the best singing may just have been music. Some of the worst singing may have been worship. Somebody just sitting there, not doing anything, may have been worshiping. Because it's not really about the actions, but about the act of the heart. What's going on there? And if you're hearing this, and you're suddenly feeling really bad about, oh, I was really distracted. Remember, we worship Jesus. Jesus. 
Uh, we worship Jesus who knows that we're really bad at things and loves us anyway, which is one of the reasons we worship Jesus. So it's really okay to worship Jesus and actually to kind of embrace the fact that you're bad at worship, because in the midst of it, you remember the kind of God that you worship. This is really just an encouragement to keep showing up each and every week to worship. We know that actually just being here on a Sunday is at least an attempt. We're trying, even if we're tired and so distracted and worried about all kinds of stuff that's going on in our lives. We're trying to worship the Lord, and we do this each and every week, not just sometimes when we feel like waking up, and not just sometimes when we happen to be in town. Or We want this to be a rhythm and a habit and a practice of ours. Because you get better at things that you practice. At these actions of worship. Hopefully, slowly and steadily, they start to make an impact on our hearts. Even if sometimes that means we show up and worship and go, Oh, right. This is the most valuable thing in my life. I'm so distracted. Oh, Lord, help me. But since that kind of practice isn't something that you can only do on a Sunday. It might actually be worth doing in your home throughout the week, which may sound very strange and weird. But it is okay, actually, to sing at home, to worship at home. And not to put you on the spot, but I think my friend Kayla actually might have some thoughts on this subject if you wanted to ask her about it later. Some practices that you might be able to do. Now, maybe you don't play guitar, and maybe you're no good on a keyboard, and it'd be weird to play tambourine by yourself. But there's this miracle called the internet, and you could probably get really good worship music in your house um, with a click of a couple of buttons. And maybe you do need to wait until your roommates leave or your kids fall asleep because you're too self-conscious. It's going to completely get in the way. But to tuck away in some quiet corner of your house where no one can see and just worship the Lord might actually be a good practice. And maybe you don't have to sing. Maybe you should be drawing or painting. Maybe you should try one of the practices the church has tried over the centuries and found useful, like fasting. Maybe that's a terrible idea for you, and you shouldn't be fasting. Maybe you should try solitude or silence. And as Lent comes, we might try experimenting with these things as a community because we want to be worshiping the Lord on a regular basis. And it's not the actions that are important nearly as much as the act of worship, what's going on underneath it all. There are people in this crowd laying their coats down in the road who are worshiping Jesus, who recognize him for who he is, who understand actually that he doesn't ride in on a war horse to go declare war on Rome and set up a new kingdom here on earth, but that he rides in on a donkey the way Zechariah talks and prophesies far into the future that God, when he comes to visit you, will come humble and gentle riding on a donkey. Not a war horse, but a weird, bumbly little farm animal. This is the God that we follow in Jesus. Not some crazy egomaniac, but someone who has come to give his life for us. Someone who is absolutely worthy of our worship. And so the thing about worship is it's a little bit like um, a truffle hunting. I don't know if you know anything about hunting for truffles. Um, it, people do it by smell. It's still the most effective way. In the world we live in with machines and computers, still people train dogs and pigs, actually, because they have a really good sense of smell, to go out and hunting through forests and following their noses until they find a, the right broken-down branch or the right old tree. Because truffles are these insanely valuable objects. Uh, worth more than their weight in gold. And that's strange because they're weird old fungus. But people love truffles in really high-end restaurants and, and fine dining establishments. And these, these things, they're, they're so powerful and so expensive that they've spawned this thing called truffle oil. Um, I don't know if you are lovers of truffle oil. I'm about to ruin it for you right now. And I just I apologize. Um, but the level of value and expense that people have put on truffles have led to this thing called truffle oil, which is most of the time just olive oil uh, with laboratory-manufactured truffle stink mixed in. 
That's what truffle oil is, because people have learned that all you really need is the smell, that it doesn't actually have to be the real thing. It can just, it can look a lot like it, but if you push a little deeper, if you probe a little deeper, you'll find that there's very little truffle, if any, actually involved in that. Judas is a little bit like this in the story. Judas, we should just sell this and give the money to the poor. Wouldn't that be a better use of this thing that she's doing? And you and I, probably, if you've been around a church at all, you know Judas is the bad guy in the story. Uh, spoilers if you don't know, Judas is the bad guy in the story. And you shouldn't listen to the bad guy in the story, and so we just don't. We, whatever he says is wrong, and we move on, which is a really bad way to read the Bible. You're reading it too quickly, and you're not actually listening. Judas's objection makes a lot of sense. In fact, it's, it's really difficult to kind of argue with, because this woman spends a crazy amount of money on Jesus in a very short amount of time, shouldn't we have sold this and given this money to the poor? Which, again, it sounds like the right thing. It, it even starts to smell like the right thing. But it, there's some things that I think if you, if you poke a little harder, you'll, you'll find there's some ugliness underneath the surface. When we look at other people's worship and we say, that's a little too extreme, a little too extravagant, that's a little too risky. When we're judging other people for the things they want to give to the Lord, I think we start straying into really dangerous territory. And sometimes it's even really well-intentioned when we say, do they really need to buy that big building? Do we really need the laser light show at this particular thing? I mean, is this really worth the expense? But then to remember that these people at some level are hoping to, to give something really precious to the Lord might create a kind of humility in us. And so maybe we say, well, that's definitely not the way I would like to worship, but I, I think I want a similar kind of extravagance in my life. I don't want to worship God with a kind of stinginess because I think that creates a stingy kind of discipleship on the back end. Um, if you're only willing to give God just a little bit of your time, but not everything because I need to keep some for me, or just a little bit of my money, but not everything because I need to keep some for me, or just a little bit of this, but not everything because I need to keep some for me. I, I think that kind of worship will lead to a very well, a neutered kind of discipleship. It's not going to get very far. It's not going to have very much power. Judas responds to this incredible act of worship um, by making this woman feel bad about worshiping Jesus, as though her worship is a threat to him. And then John tells us a little bit more. Actually, if you poke a little bit beneath the surface, what Judas is really saying is, I want that money. Like, I want that act of worship to be mine because I'm going to steal that money and use it for other things. Judas, too, is worshiping something. It's just money. And that actually is going to get him in a lot of trouble in a little bit. And not only does it cause some real issues in this story, but if you continue in the story of Judas, you'll realize he will betray Jesus because his real God is money. And he will come to regret that decision, and it will ruin his life. But he's found the thing that he worships. That's what John is telling us. And it's not the thing we should worship. We want to worship the way Mary worships. And it is weird, and it's intimate, and it's expensive and extravagant. She spends about $20,000 on Jesus, just like that. And that's hard to almost stomach. 300 denarii, by the way, is roughly a year's salary. That's, that's what we're talking about. So about $20,000 for the average poor person. One-time use. It's over, just at the feet of Jesus. It's a bizarrely intimate kind of moment. This is one of... Um, very few stories that makes it into all four Gospels, and different Gospel writers will focus more on the intimacy of the moment. Uh, this is not some practice that's common in Judaism, women wiping people's feet with their hair. That's not like a thing. It's exactly as weird as it is to you and me, right? Like that's a, 
That's, man, they have some kind of relationship that I don't understand. That's, and women in this room who probably care more about your hair than I do, you may have a much better idea of, of how powerful and also crazy this is. Uh, that, that smell, right, of the perfume and also of Jesus is going to linger in her hair. She's going to smell it for days, weeks afterward. It's going to be a very, very strong scent. And it's led some people who aren't Christians, actually, to read this passage of Scripture and say, I think they had some kind of sexual relationship. And I'm sure that that's not true. But I will say that I think they've accurately caught on to the intimacy of this moment. Um, that your assumption is, man, that he is clearly the most valuable thing in her life. She would do anything for him. She's giving up the most expensive, the most powerful thing in her life for Jesus. It's actually uh, probably her dowry. We don't really know this for sure. Uh, but think engagement ring just in the other direction. So women giving it to men. Uh, this woman is going to be literally worth less, worth space less, after this moment to, in the eyes of other men because of the fact that she's given all of this to Jesus. And she doesn't care. She's happily giving this to Jesus. It's the most valuable, the most expensive thing in her life. There's this guy I know named Stu who uh, writes about politics and religion and a variety of other things. And he tells this story about his three kids. He says, I have these three boys, and they're all beautiful and athletic and incredible, which is a real problem for the youngest one because when your older brother is all city this and your other brother is all state this, nothing you do matters. I mean, you're just, any, if you, any incredible accomplishment is really just keeping up with them because they've already done it. Before And it's kind of been hard for him to figure out his identity with these two strong older brothers. And so he and I, we go hiking together, and we go fishing together, and we go backpacking together. And just kind of talk about things. And over time, I realized that it would be helpful if I gave him kind of a pocket knife. And this is, has become kind of his identity. Whenever we go camping with the brothers, they're always asking him for the pocket knife. And there's, that's the thing. When you go on backpacking trips or camping trips, like the person with the blade, is, you know, there's a kind of power and manliness there. And so the youngest brother has this kind of power over everybody else, and he's the guy with the knife. And that's, that's become part of his identity. And the other day at my, um, my birthday, um, people were giving me gifts, and um, he waited till we were alone. And everybody kind of gone away, and he gave me the pocket knife. This incredibly important thing. I mean, his identity in our family, his sense of being a man, actually, among his brothers, just because he loves me that much. Maybe you don't understand the perfume in this story. Maybe that's going to be a block for you. But I think we understand the idea of giving extravagantly above and beyond what we actually have. The, the most powerful and intimate and expensive thing in this woman's life, she lays at the feet of Jesus because she loves him. And Jesus says that you're preparing me for the day of my burial. Leave her alone, right? Because Judas is kind of crapping all over this moment. Leave her alone. This, she's just trying to love me, and she just loves me better than you. You who spent years and years and years following Jesus, who should understand, actually, what worship looks like when you see it. Don't really get that this woman is sitting next to her brother because of me. You'll always have the poor with you. You won't always have me. And that sounds like an egomaniacal statement until you remember everything else about Jesus, that he also really loves the poor, that he sits on a donkey in a couple of chapters, that he goes to give his life as a ransom for many. So when he says something like, she's preparing me for the day of my burial, he points forward to the cross. And you and I begin to see this incredible gift she's given in light of the cross, this incredible thing that Jesus is about to give us. She gives with a kind of generosity in anticipation of the crazy generosity of Jesus who holds nothing back from us. He gives his whole life for us. Who dies for you on a cross in a moment. 
giving everything he has, the most valuable and intimate and weird thing he could possibly do, because he loves us so very much. We want to respond with a similar kind of devotion and worship. We want that fragrance, that scent to fill our lives the way that it, it fills this particular room. By the way, I don't know, have you begun to smell it yet? Has it started to make its way around? Um, you should know that um, the amount that she uses, I've used, because uh, I wasn't sure what would happen and I didn't want to overdo it. Uh, she uses about uh, 1,500 times the amount of smell uh, in this room. My wife pointed out it would probably make people dizzy. It would be all that you can really think about. That's how strong the smell would be in this room. It's a powerful and intense and extravagant thing. She doesn't even need to use all of it, but she chooses to. Uh, there's this uh, woman I know, uh, or I know of, rather, named Allison Hargreaves, who was a mountaineer and, I, in a former life, really loved uh, these sorts of things. She was 5'2", uh, one of the finest climbers in the world. At age 26, she climbed the Eiger, uh, which is in Switzerland and pretty rough, as a, a mountain goes. She was six months pregnant at the time. She said, I was pregnant. I wasn't sick. I was, <laughs> which is hardcore. Uh, five years later, uh, she was the first person to climb by herself the six north faces of the Alps. Uh, two years later, when she was 33, she climbed the world's three highest mountains in one summer. Uh, she made history as the first woman ever, the second person ever, uh, to reach the summit of Mount Everest without porters, climbing partners, or oxygen, which is... Ridiculous and impossible, but she did. Not long afterwards, she conquered Pakistan's K2, which is a ridiculous mountain. But during the descent, she and her five companions were lost in a blizzard. They never made it down. When her husband was told the news, he said, I can just hear her repeating her favorite saying, one day as a tiger is better than a thousand years as a sheep. Her husband knew her well enough that when he heard that she died, his immediate reaction is, she died doing what she left. She would be annoyed if I was upset by this because this woman would rather live a day as a tiger, would rather spend it all on something ridiculous and extravagant than live the rest of her life carefully and miserly trying to, trying to eke out some kind of long existence. There was this little old man I knew uh, in his 90s. I dated his granddaughter. And he was a really weird guy. And he said, the thing that keeps me alive is I try to do nothing. And I, I just, I don't, I don't sit and I don't leave my house. I stand a lot. I avoid a sedentary lifestyle, but I don't go on adventures because that, that's how I'll live as long as I possibly can. And I remember listening to this guy and thinking, you're just, you're wasting your life. You're going to live a really long time and do nothing with it. And I would rather live the way that this woman lives. I would rather live the way that Mary lives in this story. I think Mary would rather live as a day, a day as a tiger than as a thousand years as a sheep. If she's living for Jesus. If she's given it all for the one who's given it all for her. All right, you and I worship this God, this ridiculous, crazy God who comes and lives a life in a body and lives a life with a nose who can smell and with feet that can be washed and anointed by this woman, but who also comes to give his life for us on the cross. This incredible, ridiculous, extravagant gift should be matched by an incredible and ridiculous and extravagant kind of worship. One that you can just sense as you meet people, that as we leave this place, that worship wouldn't just be something that happens to us on Sunday mornings, but that the smell would get on us, and that it would be on us as we're out there in the world. Paul talks about it. He says that we want to be the aroma of Christ out there in the world. When people walk into a room, we, we want them to go, wow, there's, there's something different about you or about your God or the way that you live your life. I can just, I can smell it on you. Worship has a very distinct smell, friends. A very distinct smell, and you can see it in this story. We want to be people who worship the way that Mary does. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you.
We thank you for all that you've done for us. And we want to live our lives in pursuit of you. Not holding anything back, but willing to take crazy risks, even if we get hurt along the way. Willing to take crazy risks. Because you take crazy risks. Willing to be crazy generous because you're crazy generous. Lord, we worship you. Not just with our mouths, but with our hearts. In the name of Jesus, amen.